great to have our hearts prepared before we come to the study of God's Word. And indeed, it has been one of those weeks for me. I trust for you the same thing. We're just busy, a lot going on. And it was this text before me that was so comforting to my own heart, and I trust will be comforting to you as well. Thinking about this particular text and how versatile it is in the Christian life. Particularly this morning, we're looking at Romans 6, and we'll be looking at verses 8 through 11. And thinking about the various ways in which we face challenges and difficulties in the Christian life and how this passage encourages us. If you lose hope, it's this passage which gives us hope. If you are proud, it is this passage that brings you low. If you are wayward, straying from the gospel of grace, it is this passage that restores us and brings us back. When you are weak, it is this very passage that gives us strength and encouragement. This passage is deeply versatile, useful, the process of sanctification and conforming our hearts and minds to the will of God, to the life of Christ. I was thinking about even this whole week and so much going on from a graduation Sunday to events on Monday to midweek preparations and family in town, finding again uh, visitors and, and uh, studying between hours, you know, squeezing out time to study for Sunday morning, Sunday night, taking the son to baseball games, dealing with conflict and in uh, marital situations, and then hearing about a sudden death last weekend, friends who have recent diagnosis of cancer, and on and on the pressures go. And you think in the midst of all of those pressures and difficulties, what is the encouragement? What is the hope? And it is this passage in Romans 6 that constantly ministered to my own soul in the midst of the pressures, and I hope will minister to your own soul in the midst of difficulties. We are alive to Christ. And being alive to Christ is manifested in a particular way, and that's what we get to look at in this marvelous text before us. What I'm aware of in the light of all the pressures that come upon us However that pressure comes, whether it comes as an overt temptation or whether it comes as heavy difficulties pressing upon us and pulling us in different directions, whenever the particular pressures come, what I know is at work is a battle for the heart. What do you believe? What do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about what God is doing and how he is working in that situation? All of that is being revealed in the midst of that difficult season. The battle against sin starts in the heart and mind. There has to be an internal transformation. An internal transformation that then leads to an external reformation. It's where the battle begins. It is likely... That is why when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3 in the middle of the night, found Jesus in the darkness of night, said to Jesus, we know that you are from God. 
And Jesus responded to him in a, uh, out of nowhere, seemingly, you must be born again. So it's Nicodemus responding to that comment says, can a man go back into his mother's womb and be reborn? He didn't even begin to comprehend what the statement meant. In which Jesus then doubles down and reminds them, you must be born again. You don't know where the wind blows. You don't know how the Spirit moves. One must be born of God. He must be born again. He must start with an internal transformation. An internal renovation of the heart and mind. And then the Christian life is a continuation of that transformation. What begins as regeneration then moves to a continual renewal of the heart and minds where we are thinking about what is right, thinking about what is true. And what happens when the various pressures and difficulties of life come upon us or when the temptations come upon us is we struggle at that very point. Do we believe what God says? We believe what his word says about us and about him. If you look later in Romans 12, turn over a couple of chapters, Paul continues on this particular theme, talking about the inner heart revival and transformation. Romans 12, 2, that very familiar passage, which you likely have memorized. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, But notice, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind for the purpose so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There is a heart transformation, a mind transformation that regularly takes place in the Christian life. Paul said it to the Ephesians like this in Ephesians 4, 22 and 23. You can listen. So that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, in verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We need to have our thoughts recaptured and refocused, our mind redirected to what is right. The spiritual transformation that takes place in a believer, the, the reformation that comes out when you have believed is, at the root, a heart transformation, a mind transformation. We begin thinking about the things that are right and true, and we live in light of those truths. Turn back to Romans 6. It's that knowledge of the truth that protects us. It's that knowledge of that truth that changes us and renews us and sanctifies us and transforms us. It's that knowledge of truth that is at the heart of being transformed, being sanctified, having the power of God to overcome sin. I think this is why in this text, in multiple places in these first 14 verses, that Paul refers to what we know. Notice verse 3 again. Do you not know? And in verse 6 again, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. And then down in verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, and then verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin 
Everything is about what you dwell on, what you know, what you believe. The practice of living alive to Christ finds at its its root a knowledge in the truth. Sin works to enslave us, and the truth comes to set us free. The truth comes to deliver us from that slavery, while sin seeks to bind us and to limit us. I understand how sin works, just as you do. We're all wise if we've been in the Lord any amount of time. We know how temptation works. Something comes across our heart and mind, a thought or an idea. Before you know it, you begin to think, I must have that. The longer you dwell on it, you begin to think, I can't live without that. And then as you engage in those behaviors, you begin to fear, I can't lose that. I must have it. And when you can't have your sin immediately, or you can't have that desire, that thing you're, you're longing after, you begin to question if God even cares. Is God good? Is he withholding something from you that is good, something that you want? Or do others care because they are keeping you from what you want? And before you know it, that thinking begins to dominate your own heart since that sin has taken up permanent residence in your mind. And sin operates in that like mental hard candy. Your heart and your mind turn that desire over and over and over again. Like a jolly rancher in the mouth, sin turns around over and over in the mind, affecting your thoughts until the whole inner man is affected. Stained by the fleshly passion. And like a hard candy moving around your mouth, slowly distributing its flavor, so too that sinful thought moves around the mind, slowly corrupting the whole heart and mind, bending you to evil, enticing you to engage in what is unrighteous, and even worse, hardening the heart, as Ephesians 4 describes, so that you would forget God and forget his ways. And forget what is right and begin to doubt his word and doubt his instructions and doubt his warnings and doubt his promises. So that then the heart in those moments as it becomes hardened and doubtful and filled with unbelief then seeks the pleasures of sin, seeks the delight in it. It all starts as a battle within. This is why... In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, it's not what goes into the man that defiles the man, but the thing is what comes out of the man. Mark seven fifteen, He goes on in verse 20 to say, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, produce evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. The battle against sin is a battle that starts in the heart. It starts in the thoughts. It starts in our affections within. This is where the battle is. 
And it's a battle of faith. It is a battle to dwell on the truth. It is a battle to conform the heart and mind to holiness and righteousness so that it then works itself out to an external reformation. I think this is why Solomon said to his sons in Proverbs 4 and verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flows the springs of life. This is where the battle is. It's on what you believe. And what you believe then carries out into what you practice and what you do. The internal transformation of the mind leads to an external renovation of life. Leads to a life of conviction. A life of upright practice. And this is where Paul is driving our attention in this section. He's driving our attention to the doctrine that leads to sanctified living. He's driving our thoughts and minds to truths that we live in light of so that we would be transformed. But it's interesting here that as Paul is unfolding these truths and as he is teaching us and informing he isn't just simply listing a bunch of behaviors and saying, stop do, doing this. He isn't just saying, you know, stop yelling or stop stealing or stop lying. As if stopping certain behaviors then fixes the problem. I've heard plenty of people say things, well, I've stopped yelling, so I'm not an angry person. Or I stopped stealing, so I'm not a thief any longer. Or I stopped lying, so I'm not a liar. Certainly it's good that you stopped yelling, but maybe you should be gentle, kind with your speech. Certainly it's good that you stopped stealing, but you need to labor to give instead. And it's certainly good that you stopped lying, but now you need to delight in truth and speak truth. That's when a liar is no longer a liar is when he speaks truth and a thief is no longer a thief is when he labors and gives instead and one who is filled with anger is no longer controlled by anger when he walks in the peacefulness of love, the gentleness of love. This is where transformation begins. Begins to transform. It's not just simply stopping behavior so we can all come up with a list of behaviors to stop. In fact, uh, you know, we... As parents, we kind of go to that. Stop it. You know, your kids are in the back of the car, they're arguing, just stop it. In fact, there's a great little video clip by Bob Newhart on his, his uh, counseling. And he says, I can solve all counseling cases in two words. Stop it. We, this, but this is not the biblical process of change. The biblical process of change is that there is a replacing of behaviors. There is the putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new man. And this is exactly what Paul is unfolding here. We have put off, we have died to sin, and now we put on, we live to Jesus Christ. This is the put on. And it is a put on that comes from dwelling on what is true and what is right. So, before we get into this text, I want to give you the end, and I'll repeat it again at the end. But I want to give it to you because I want you to walk away with this. There are two truths 
that we have to walk away with when we're walking through this text. And the first is this. The battle against sin starts with a heart renovation. It starts with an inner man heart renovation. And then secondly, it's not sufficient enough to put off the bad behavior. We must put on the new behavior. This is what Paul unfolds here in this text. Notice what he says in verses 8 through 11. He says, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. The death that he died... He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, Christian, I want you to understand, no matter what state of the Christian life you're in, no matter what the particular pressure, whether it is the battle against a sinful desire or it is weakness in your spiritual life or it is doubts, this passage is the comfort for you. This is the passage we find our anchor in. We're reminded here again in verse 8 of this principle, the believer is alive to Christ, verse 8. That's how Paul starts this. It tends to be, uh, in the English, it reads a little differently. Now, if we have died. You see the conditional statement there, if, and we tend to think uh, subjective, that maybe the possibility that we have died. Have we really died? We don't know. I don't feel like I'm dead. That tends to be the idea that gets imported upon this text here, that there is some kind of question of whether or not one has truly died with Christ. I think this is a faulty translation here. Why? For a couple reasons. First, this. Paul puts the we in there. The we is the, you know, himself. Is Paul doubting his own salvation at this particular point? He's not doubting his own Salvation at this point. Actually, what you have here is a conditional statement with a present tense verb. In that, con- that construct, that is a construct, it is a, a condition of fact. This is not the only time this particular construct is used. It's actually used in our scripture reading this morning, Colossians 3.1, when he says, if you have been raised up with Christ, the better translation would be, since you have been raised up with Christ. That's the same idea here. Since we have died with Christ, the condition of fact is, if you have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have died with Christ. That's the condition. That's the starting point here. Starting point is those who believe the gospel have died with Christ. And then the verb, verse 8, we believe. We continually believe. We regularly and continually practice belief in what? That we shall also live with him. Future tense. Because we have died, since we believe the gospel and because we have died, we now live believing that we will be resurrected. That is our life now. Everyone who has embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ now lives in this place where they have died 
They've died with Christ, died to their former lives, died to the rule of sin over them, died to the rebellion against God, died to worldliness, died to ungodliness, and now we live in anticipation of the resurrection. <clears throat> we live, and again, this is the emphasis here in verse seven or verse eight. It is a future tense. We will also be raised with him, or we will also live with him. I love that even phrase there, we will live with him. It's not only speaking about being having a new life in which we are raised up, it's also anticipating a life that will constantly be in his presence, living and dwelling with God. So Paul is emphasizing here, because of those who have embraced the gospel, because they have embraced the gospel, they're dead with Christ. They have died, and now they are living in this state of, noon, of anticipating the resurrection. So we live. This is picking up on verse 5. You remember back in verse 5 when he says, For if we have been become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. He takes that principle, that idea, and now he flushes it out and gives us more to think about in regards to this idea. There is a principle here about the operation of the Christian, and I think, honestly, that this is fundamentally why we struggle as much as we struggle in the internal battles, whether that battle is doubt, weakness, immaturity, ungodliness, whatever the expression of that battle when it comes upon us, is at the core, it is because of this principle, we fail to live by faith in the resurrection. Our resurrection. Our account to God. Our life before him. Paul, taking that idea, building upon it, then in verses 9 through 11, gives us three demonstrations by which we will be living this life of anticipating the resurrection. That's where I want to draw our attention in our remaining moments here. He's going to show us how to walk in this faith, to walk in this belief that we are going to live with him. And he's showing us what we are to be thinking about and doing and practicing so that we will be dwelling in this. The first is this. The life, this life that is living in anticipation of the resurrection is demonstrated by our awareness or understanding of Christ's resurrection. Or to say it a different way, live dwelling on the truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 tells us that. Notice, knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. What is it that you know? What is it you dwell upon? Again, this is theology. These are doctrinal truths. You believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. Knowing that, you have dwelled on that God had the power to raise the Son of God from the dead, and he conquered death. 
That is what we dwell on. So that, as it says at the middle of verse 9, he is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. What kind of death is Paul referring to here? You remember in our study that the Bible could speak of death in one of three ways. It could speak of spiritual death. It could speak of physical death. Or it could speak of eternal death. And in context, we have to use the context to figure out which form of death that he's referring to here. And we can begin to limit it down and understand exactly what Paul is referring to here. Because first of all, he's speaking about Christ's death. Well, Christ is not facing spiritual death because he didn't receive Adam's nature. He, re- he received the consequences of our sin. They were, they were put on his account. He received our transgressions, but he didn't receive a corruption. And we're not speaking of eternal death because, again, he has conquered the grave. What is he speaking of here? He's speaking of the physical death. And what Paul is saying here is we need to be dwelling on an understanding that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. That is to say this, the doctrine of the resurrection is not simply an Easter Sunday morning message. It is the everyday principle of the Christian life. We live in the awareness of the physical resurrection. And just as Christ demonstrated his physical resurrection from the grave, so too all those who live in Christ, they're going to be physically resurrected. What happens when you're physically resurrected? This particular state? You're going to be in the presence of God. You're going to be with Christ. You're going to be, again, when you're resurrected, before the living God. I thought about that truth. I thought, you know, that's Christianity 101. I mean, that's so simple, so plain. Why not just speed through this and get on to something new? But then I recognized that the simple things are often the most important things and the simple things we forget and have deep consequences. And when we forget the knowing of the truth, when we forget the knowledge of God and his ways, it has severe consequences and even destruction. Let me illustrate this to you by turning to an Old Testament prophet. Turn over to Hosea. This is the beginning of the Minor Prophets, right after the book of Daniel. Hosea, chapter 4. The prophet Hosea is recording God's pronouncement of judgment upon Israel. Notice these verses, starting Hosea, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has, caught, has a case against the inhabitants of the land. Why? Because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. 
God is addressing all the people of the land here. And he's saying of them that they have lost faithfulness. They're no longer a covenant-keeping people. They're living faithlessly, unrighteously. They are inconsistent with what they ought to have conducted themselves. They have lost, as the text indicates, their kindness. It's actually the word for steadfast love, chassid. It is the word that speaks of covenant loyalty. They've lost a steadfast, loyal love, and that's not the worst of it. They no longer have a knowledge of God in the land. They have forgotten God. Verse 2, there is swearing and deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, and also of the fish of the sea, disappear. Let no one find fault, and let no one offer reproof. For your people are like those who contend with the priest. Notice the judgments that came. Because of their wicked deeds, verse 2, because of their deceptions, because of their, their violence, because of their bloodshed, that comes, comes the judgments of God. The land mourns, verse 3. Everyone who lives in the lands languish, along with the beasts and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, they disappear. There is animals languishing and droughts and famines, and God is pulling back his favor. Sound familiar? Verse 5, so you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother, i.e., I will destroy the whole nation of Israel. There is a personal corruption among the people, among the sons of Israel. That personal corruption has even moved into the spiritual leaders, the very prophets. Those who, who, who should be bringing clarity, spiritual clarity, even they stumble. The people are stumbling and even the spiritual leaders are stumbling. Verse 6, notice, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priests. This speaking again to the whole nation, they should have been a distinct nation, a set-apart nation. They should have been his priests before the other nations. Now they have forgotten their God, rejected their God, and so God is rejecting them. They're rejected because since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your Children, what is the root cause? They have forgotten. The people have forgotten, and even the spiritual leaders have forgotten. And again, it goes back and forth in this this context between the priests being the whole nation of Israel and the priests being particular priests or spiritual leaders. But in this particular case, the whole group is corrupted. The leaders and the people They've forgotten their God. They've forgotten his character. They've forgotten his ways, his commandments. They've forgotten his love, his purposes. They've forgotten his instructions, his word. They have forgotten the very law of God. 
verse 7 through 9. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity, and it will be like people, like priests. The very people stirred up evil, the very priests encouraged evil. The more they pursued evil, the more the encouragement to do evil, all because at the root they have forgotten their God. Turn back to Romans 6, 8 then and read Romans 6, 8 in the light of what it looks like to forget God. These words just stand out all the more as striking. Now, since we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. We live in the knowledge of God, the power of God, that he's going to raise the dead, and he's going to raise us first. We will be raised. The dead in Christ will first be raised. We will be the first, the first fruits the first ones to come into the very presence of God, the first to see His glory, the first to delight in the riches of His grace. We live in light of this knowledge. To live any other way is to forget God. To live any other way is to forget His character and to forget His ways and to forget His righteousness and to even live in doubt of the resurrection. Forget his justice. Forget his holiness. And if there is a problem today, this is the problem. This is the epidemic. It's amnesia. We have lost the knowledge of God. Arizona Christian University published a report, actually this month, last week, assessing a thousand ministers in the U.S., And they concluded after this survey of 1,000 preachers in the U.S. that four out of ten senior pastors had a biblical worldview. The next highest is 28% among associate pastors. And then teaching pastors, 13% of them had a worldview. And then the worst, well, not the worst of all, the next, youth pastors, 12%, and the worst, executive pastors, 4%. Let that sink in. 90%, well, 88% of youth pastors do not believe the Bible. 70% of associate pastors didn't believe the Bible. And 60% of senior pastors hadn't believed the word of God and what the Bible taught, and specifically in the area of beliefs and behaviors related to the Bible, truth, and morality. That would be, then, 40% of churches. And within that, there even may be some who would not believe. There is an epidemic of losing the knowledge of God, losing belief in what the scriptures teach. We can proclaim the doctrine of the resurrection and we can have an Easter service. But do you think about this? 
While every church on Easter Sunday preaches an Easter message, six of them don't even believe it. Six won't live in light of that knowledge, that truth, but they will articulate it. The end of the article that I read said this, It has been said that wolves in sheep's clothing are dangerous, but wolves in shepherd's clothing are downright deadly. America's churches, America's church leaders have been wolves disguised as shepherds. I think that fundamentally it is at this very point right here in Romans 6, 8 and 9, man no longer lives in the knowledge of God. Knowing the power of God and the resurrection of Christ and living in light of that, there is an unbelief. They won't give an account. They won't have to say anything. They won't have to respond. I think again, I would want to read to many pastors over and over again. Do you remember James 3, 1? Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. You have to give an account. We live in awareness of a physical resurrection because we know that Jesus was physically raised. Because he conquered death. He conquered physical death. He raised. Because he raised, we too live in that knowledge. And if he raised from the dead, then we have to give an account to a just God. We have to be prepared to look face to face into a God of holiness and righteousness. We have to be prepared to respond to a God who is perfectly righteous and good in all of his ways. And what Paul m- marks out here is that because Christ has been raised, we will also be like Christ and we will be raised. Sin is no longer to be a master over us because we're going to conquer death. Leads us to the second principle point, this life. This life is demonstrated in Christ's life before God. So that when we're living in this faith, Believing in his resurrection is not only living in a knowledge that God raised Christ physically from the dead. The second thing is we live in knowledge of the example of Christ. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Notice, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Christ is our example. Christ's example, Christ's conduct is our example for us to walk in. We walk in his footsteps, in his example. We live like God, we live like Christ. And how did he live? Verse 10 tells us, he lives to God. He lives to God's purposes, God's desires. That's where I think it's a bit trite, the whole WWJD. What would Jesus do? It's been over-marketed, but that is this principle here. We look to the example of Christ and we walk in those footsteps. I think this is why exactly, again, where Romans 12, 2, we are to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, Romans 12, 1. Our bodies are offered up as a sacrifice to God. We live to God. We live to his holiness, his righteousness, his directing 
Why? Because of the resurrection. Because Christ has been raised, so we too. And because we know that we too are going to be resurrected. And that's why we're living under this awareness that he has been resurrected physically, so we know we're going to be resurrected physically, so now we're going to live like him and his example. We're going to live to God. Nowadays, it's become a source of contempt to speak of godliness. Because to speak of godliness, then, is to, has been accused of speaking of legalism. If I call you to be godly, then, well, you're just calling me to legalism. So I abandon all of that. No, I'm only calling you to walk like Jesus Christ. Walk like him. Live to God. It's not legalism. It's a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. This leads us to the last truth we shape our mind with as we are living in this newfound faith, this life that's living in anticipation of the resurrection. This life is demonstrated in the believer's view of himself. Verse 11. Even so... Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this is fascinating here. The word consider is the word legizomai. And if you were here in the section in Romans chapter 4, you know that that word was used over and over again. Eleven times in Romans chapter 4, that word is used and it is used and translated as reckoned, to credit. It is reckoned or credited or taken into account. The term is a legal term, a financial term. It has the idea of a banker who has a debt slip and he clears the account so that the account has been satisfied. You have been reckoned, you have been it's been taken into account. The debt has been satisfied. And what Paul is saying here is you consider yourself, you, you reckon yourself as dead to sin. You in legal terms have determined the satisfaction of that and you have determined it. You're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Legitimai. As I said, it's used 11 times in chapter 4. If you just want to go back and see its usage, it's in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 22, 23, 24. Over and over, it was referring to the justifying work that, that Abraham was reckoned as righteousness, declared righteous. What is our belief? You see, oftentimes when we get into the battle against sin and we're in the throes of it, again, whether it's doubts, whether it's the sinful battle of the flesh, whether it's weakness, one of the first things that occurs is I must not be a believer. I mean, that's why I don't have the strength to overcome this. That's why I keep falling into the same sin. That's why I keep doing the same things over and over again is because I must not be a believer. Paul says here, Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. 
In that midst of that moment, when all the flesh is saying the sinful passion is ruling or I'm too weak, I can't overcome this, the resolve is I have been reckoned as dead to sin. As certain as your justification, that is the application of the righteousness of God to your account, is as certain as your standing before God, you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you believe the gospel of God's grace. You've embraced it. You live in verse 9. You believe that you are going to be resurrected with Jesus Christ. You live in this state of believing that. You haven't lost the knowledge of God. You continue to be filled with awareness of God and His power to raise your life is now lived to God. You don't live for yourself. You don't live for your own glories. You live for the glory of God. And in the moments when the flesh lies and the doubts fill our minds, when we are uncertain, we go back to this legal reckoning. We are resolved of our state that we're dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. See, friends, this is a powerful passage in the day-to-day spiritual battles. Because we haven't fully realized yet what it means to be alive and to be resurrected. It isn't fully manifest yet, but we begin to taste it now, experience it in small parts. But what is tested in the moment is our belief, our faith. Do we hold the doctrine of the resurrection as a fairy tale out there that we like to talk about on Easter? Or is it an everyday principle that governs our thoughts, our words, our actions? You know, it's almost like cold water in the face to ask yourself the question, Do I want to look Christ in the eyes and give an answer for this next action? That's what living in light of the resurrection is. I know that I will have to give an account, and I don't want to give an account for this action, or this thought, or this unbelief. We live for Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is we were dead to sin, now we're alive to Christ. We're alive to the knowledge. We're alive to the practice and pursuit. We're alive even in our awareness and resolve committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week when we come back, we'll look at verses 12 through 14 and see the spiritual battle. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, indeed we are comforted by your truth, comforted by the message that even at times we have not seen that the consistency of faith as we wish. We do recognize the power of your word, that your truth sets us free. And indeed, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we've been set free from it. And we are living in the hope and the anticipation of a new life, of a resurrection of the end of this body of weakness, the end of this corrupted flesh, the end of, of a heart that is bent towards evil, we anticipate the, the riches of your grace in the resurrection. 
When we move into a context of perfect righteousness ruling over the earth, and we go into a context where truth is honored by all and revered, when we go into a context where righteousness reigns and your glory is manifest and we are revealed with you in your glory, and when all of our despair is taken away and all of our weakness is turned into strength, when all of our immaturity is cast aside and we walk in the mature man, the new man that is made into the image of Christ. And when we enjoy the riches of peace with God and peace with one another and the sweetness of fellowship across generations, all around the glories of Christ, when we see the expressions of love manifested richly and fully and we get to enjoy sweet fellowship and communion with peace and gentleness and mercy expressed to one another, And we get to keep this for all of eternity, for it will never be threatened or taken away. It's in that we find great joy and comfort. No longer fearing the turmoil of a market crash or the distressing news of a new political party taken over or the uncertainties of where life is heading. We will reign in stableness of righteousness. So may we always live in light of these things so that our hearts are not distracted in fears and unbelief, but we're encouraged by the truth, knowing we're not going to find this encouragement from the heart of man, but we find this encouragement from your scriptures. So may we be a people strong in faith. It's in your name we pray. Amen.